Welcome to the Smart Money Tribe podcast. I'm your host, RSF. I'm the founder of smartmoneyafrica.org, a financial education platform tailored to the African millennial woman. But I'm probably best known as the author of two best-selling personal finance books, The Smart Money Woman and The Smart Money Tribe. I love having money conversations that encourage African women to think bigger and become the chief financial officers of their own personal economies. This podcast is a weekly show that will focus on powerful conversations, stories, and practical lessons that teach African millennial women how to make money, keep money, and grow money. New Year, same goals, extra ginger. Happy New Year, people. It's been a minute. So I started this podcast during the COVID-19 pandemic because... It had been a goal I had for such a long time, and I had hoped to have more than seven episodes in season one, but all my other commitments kind of got in the way. I usually spend the last month of every year assessing my year, so measuring my successes and doing a post-mortem of my failures, and (laughs) I have to say that 2020 was filled with mixed blessings. I had a lot of wins, but I also took a lot of hits and dealt with some disappointments. But I'm actually super grateful for the clarity that 2020 gave me in so many aspects of my life. So all in all, it was a pretty big year. I turned my book, The Smart Money Woman, into a 13-episode TV series, which aired for the first time in September on African Magic. Yay! (laughs) And we're now working on getting it on international streaming platforms. Pray for us. So I'm super stoked. I had been working on this project for the better part of two years. From conceptualizing the idea, doing the primary research required to figure out the business model, figuring out how to carry out the project effectively, raising funds, convincing brands um, to get ad spots and product placements on the show. It was quite a ride. And in all of that, I was also very hands-on as an executive producer. And I had to learn, you know, about production on the job on such a huge project. So it was a great learning experience, um, lots of battle scars, but I'm so grateful for all the positive feedback that we got on Twitter, the Instagram conversations, etc, etc. It was a great reception, guys. And honestly, you know, you work on something for so long, you know, have a really creative approach to, you know, solving the problem or putting the project out, but you never really know how people are going to respond to it. So you can put in all that work and then it lands and it's flat, right? But the reception was great and I was so grateful because it it felt like all the hard work was worth it. So yeah, oh my God, I lost 48 pounds (laughs) last year. Um, And this was such a huge deal for me because weight is something that I've struggled with since I was in university. I used to be really skinny and then started gaining weights when I was like in second year of uni. And it's just gotten considerably harder, um, the yo-yoing, 
So gaining weight, losing it, it's gotten considerably harder as I've gotten older due to a combination of factors, age, PCOS, and overeating. But let's be honest, mostly overeating because I like food. Food is the number one cause of my problems. My obsession with Amala and Fufu (laughs) is actually a problem. But, you know, baby steps. Anyway, when I saw 202 pounds on my scale, I just got tired of failing at this goal and trying to lose the same weight over and over again. It was exhausting, but I decided to take my weight loss more seriously. Um, So I started doing a combination of things, intermittent fasting, boxing with a trainer, and skipping. Skipping really helped. Oh my God, I learned how to skip last year. (laughs) I legit never learned as a child. I don't know why, but as I got older, I just avoided it at the gym. And I would opt for some other exercise, like if, you know, the trainer said it. But one of the things I'm trying hard to unlearn is telling myself that I can't do something instead of trying. So yeah. Anyway, this end of year postmortem gave me a few insights, good and bad into my 2020 personal finances. And I wanted to share because I think, you know, other people might find it helpful. So first thing, balance sheet wealth versus income statement wealth. So every year, I like to end the year by assessing my personal finances as though I was the CEO of a company. Yes, a company. The company being me, RSA Inc., (laughs) hello um so i prepare a balance sheet and an income statement the balance sheet which is basically my net worth statement because it gives you a snapshot of your true financial position at that particular time so it illustrates your assets versus your liabilities so how much you own versus how much you owe So in the asset column, you make a list of everything that you own of value. So stocks, land, property, cash in bank, and you attach um, their current market value. So for example, how much are my GTB shares on the day that I'm doing this exercise? If I wanted to sell my land or property today, what is the current market value? Sure gets. (laughs) Okay. So then in the liabilities column, how much do I owe? in total, what's the current value of my short and long-term debts? So your net worth is basically the value of your total assets minus the value of your total liabilities. So in 2020, my net worth improved slightly because the value of some of my assets improved, but unfortunately, some of my liabilities also increased. But thankfully, not as much or by as much of a percentage increase um, as the appreciation of my assets. So my net worth improved. I'm usually not too pressed about the actual figure because the goal is to improve my net worth every year. So I'm more interested in the trend upwards year on year, but as, or let me say, I'm usually more interested in the trend upwards year on year, but let's be quite honest. As I turn 36 this year, and as I get closer to 40, the more gingered I am to find opportunities that help me improve the number, you know, aggressively. So we need to get on it. Um, So now the income statements, your profits and loss 
statements. It basically shows me my income versus my expenses. So here, my income is earned income. So the salary from my business, income from assets. So dividends from a stock portfolio, rental income from a property, royalties from books, income from one-off contracts, etc. As compared to my expenses. So rent, utilities, groceries, all of that stuff. So here, I made a loss. Not a big loss, but a loss. <laughs> because my earned income had reduced from the previous year and my expense control wasn't great either. So I thought I thought that I had reined in my post-lockdown um, spending. <laughs> um, but doing a total tally of the numbers, my expenses were sharp, higher than usual. So let me just blame COVID. COVID anxiety that led to buying etc etc but the cocoa of the matter was that the quality of my streams of income were not as great as they should have been hopefully they'll be greater this year um so a few takeaways from this exercise the goal is financial freedom which is basically when your passive income from your assets can pay for your lifestyle so for example The rental income that you get from your properties can cover your holidays, your shopping trips. um, And it takes a while to get there, but that's shady goal. The goal is to be financially free, to build assets that can pay me an income in the future. Um, So you want to aggressively invest in assets that have the potential to appreciate in value in the future and also be income producing. But it's also important to find a balance because, for example, you could be balance sheet wealthy because you've invested in assets that are great, but while you, but it might take a while to produce a significant income from said assets and you need money to live and do, you know, lifestyle things. So, for example, you could have invested in real estate that is valued at 15 million, but it currently only produces income of 1.5 million per annum, right? So that's your earned income from that particular asset. So if that was your only source of income, that was your only, you know, asset and your expenses were say 5 million a year. Obviously, if you're spending 5 million and your earned income is 1.5 from the asset, you will struggle. You will struggle with liquidity and you will struggle with cash flow management. So in order to be able to create a balance sheet or um, income statement, you have to have been keeping monthly records of your earnings and expenses. Sure gets. But the beauty of doing these numbers is that it gives you clarity. So my 2020 financial results were not as amazing as I would have liked, but I'm glad that um, I've done the work to see where my blind spots are. And I'm gingered because (laughs) I'm going to be so aggressive and intentional this year. God help me. This episode is brought to you by Wealth.ng. Wealth.ng is a self-service investment marketplace based in Nigeria. It acts as a one-stop shop for all your investment needs from the convenience of your phone or laptop. They give you access to a bouquet of investments that range from treasury bills, stocks and bonds to agri-products. Download the Wealth.ng app to find out more. So the other thing I really wanted to share was about internalizing failure. 
listen, bodies, <laughs> do not internalize failure. You can fail fast and fail forward, but don't let the fear and disappointment and negative feelings that come with failure, like sort of take over your life and your mind. I wanted to talk about this, especially at the beginning of the year, as all you hear about is set goals, make them specific and measurable, yada, 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 which is important. But you know what no one talks about? No one talks about how to deal with that feeling of failure when you don't hit those goals. So you set a goal to save 100K every month so that at the end of the year, you can have 1.2 million. But many obstacles wear their ugly heads and you've saved only 500K at the end of the year. Or you set revenue goals for your business and you only did 40% of what you intended. All these things suck. And when, you, when things don't work out back to back, it's easy to internalize the feeling of failure and start believing that things don't work in your favor and there's something about you that's just not you know, going well. Maybe you're just not getting it right. And there's something about being in that headspace where it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. I've seen people who have been previously successful get in this headspace after a series of failures and it begets even more unexplained failures because it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, here's the interesting thing. I know this. I've seen it happen. I know how if you lose control of your mind, especially in the midst of a crisis, it actually makes things worse because you make poor decisions. But still, internalizing failure is something that I struggle with from time to time. But this is how I've personally learned how to cope, right? So when I seemingly failed at something, I start by assessing the why. Why did I fail? Then I remove my feelings from, you know, when you remove feelings from facts to figure out why you didn't hit the goal, like it's super important. So not feeling depressed, like, oh God, woe is me, but actually removing feelings from facts. So sometimes it's because the timeline is unrealistic or you just didn't have the capacity to execute. Or sometimes it's because you didn't follow through. You weren't consistent. And many times the combination of these issues, right? So for example, when I set out to turn my book into a TV series, I set a revenue goal. I mapped out a strategy for how I was going to hit that goal. And it was a big, hairy, audacious goal because I like to stretch myself. <laughs> but in retrospect, it might have been a tad unrealistic for a first-time producer. I didn't hit the number that I was hoping and working for in the time frame that I had set. Um, but I did 72% of the revenue goal for the local flights of the series. And I won't lie, Ipemisha, I beat myself up for a while, but then I put things in perspective. Honestly. 72% is still an A, okay? But then, you know, when I sat down to really look at why did you not hit this goal that you set, RSM? And when I was really honest with myself, it was because, number one, I am the queen of unrealistic deadlines. <laughs> My mother calls me a pressure cooker. 
Because when I decide to embark on a project, I want everything to happen immediately. You're looking at a woman who, whose initial goal to finish her second book was three months. <laughs> when it took me a year and a half to write the first book, I would deceive myself that this time I have already, you know, done, you know, the framework. I'm not developing the new characters from scratch. I'll be more disciplined with my time. I won't procrastinate as much. But yeah, it still took me a year plus to get it done. And I did it well, but it took me a long time. Um, sometimes it works in my favor, Sha, because there's a self-imposed sense of urgency to accomplishing my goals. But I'm learning to give myself more grace if things don't happen within the timeline that I had hoped for, right? Like forgive myself, move on. Also, another thing I had to come to terms with was just because I was convinced that this was a no-brainer and that brands would jump on this quickly, the route to convincing them was complex. So the TV series was mostly funded through advertising and product placement revenue. Now, in my mind, I had written this great book that was a bestseller across Africa, hundreds of thousands of positive reviews. The book became so popular that it was pirated in multiple countries. I'm still sad about that, but yeah, moving on. I'd written this, you know, financial literacy book that young people actually wanted to read, share, and discuss. So turning it into a TV series starring some of the biggest um, stars in the Nigerian entertainment industry, it'll be a great way to advertise, you know, the brand's products and services, right? <laughs> Um, because it's a captive audience. In my mind, it was a no-brainer. But bruv, I had to speak plenty English. For every yes I got, I probably got 10 no's. Plenty pitch decks were sent out, many unanswered emails, hours of countless meetings that led nowhere. And it's easy to sound like a soldier that has no feelings when you eventually get the yeses that you need, right? It's like, how did you do this? But that in-between stage, eh, before you get there, huh, the no's can be discouraging and they can kill your momentum. But when I think about it objectively, yes, I was a successful author, but I was essentially a first-time producer. I produced some tiny shows for YouTube, but nothing on this scale. Um, so I guess they were right to be skeptical about whether you... I could deliver or not. And to be quite honest, it was a challenge. It was a, I, I used a lot of the doubts to challenge myself to say, listen, you're going to do this for everybody that thinks you can't. <laughs> you're going to prove them wrong, right? In fact, I remember telling one person, I may not have produced a TV series before, but I had never written a book before either. Hello. <laughs> but to be honest, like, I'm super grateful so I've been able to work with incredible brands like First Bank, who are the first to believe in the project, Mastercard, Unilever by way of Sunlight and Pepsodent, um, Airtel and Virgin Atlantic. So I may not have hit the numbers that I set out to achieve, but I was still, you know, in an amazing place because many productions of this size don't break even at all. And sometimes hard things take time. So 
my takeaway from this experience was don't take the nose personally. Ask why. Use the feedback to improve on your pitch for the next brand. Be persistent. Follow up, follow up, follow up. I'm actually the most annoying about this. I usually won't let you rest until I get what I want. And even when I get a definitive no, I try to keep the door open because there might be other projects that they may be interested in down the road. I also acknowledge that I didn't have the capacity to execute. So me and my very small team were doing the work of a hundred people in order to pull this off. And we still created magic. Yay. The teamwork was amazing. So key takeaways from this episode, do the numbers. More important than setting New Year's resolutions, it's important to take stock of how you did in the previous year so that you can see where to improve. It's okay to fail. It is very okay. But fail fast and fail forward. Do not, I repeat, do not internalize your feelings of failure. I hope you found this helpful. And yeah, follow me on Instagram. Tell me what you'd like me to discuss on the podcast. I'm super excited for some of the women that I'm going to be interviewing this year. So yay. Play to win, guys. Play to win. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Smart Money Tribe podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm super excited about creating financial content for African millennial women who want to live a fabulous life, but also want to learn how to find the balance between spending on their lifestyle needs and building assets that could protect their financial futures.